Welcome, adventurer, listener, and kindred soul. You are listening to Starlight, a Dungeons and Dragons space opera podcast on the Ink and Virtue Network. Whether a new friend or an old one, we are glad to have you along for the adventures. The Ink and Virtue Network is dedicated to delivering stories of epic proportions straight to you. Whether it's listening to the impromptu adventures of Squad Luma or diving into the manuscripts of an author, there is something here for everyone. You can support the show by rating it, sharing it with a friend, or finding your way to our network's coffee page where donations help us to keep the magic alive. We appreciate you, and fare thee well, Spacer. Travel safely across the great expanse. Here we go. Roll for initiative. Hello guys and welcome to this first new segment for the every fourth Tuesday of the month. Prior, if you were a follower, as I know many of you were of the show, what I would do is a more dramatized version of a lore section, followed by getting the whole crew together to discuss Q&A from the audience and so on. Well, this one's going to be the first of a, a new type of segment that we've tried. We've tried a few other ones. And I think that this is one that's going to stick. But please, please, please let me know as we go on what you think. So first, let me kind of explain what it is. The format's going to still kind of be a lore segment, less dramatized and more of me just kind of telling you about the faction or the types of people in a more kind of casual talking format, kind of like right now. And then we will move into a very short little conversational piece where I talk about a few things of interest from the different episodes and whether that's the mechanics of how something happened, my thoughts on it, what could have been done better, or just kind of whatever comes to mind. And it's going to be short. It's going to be sweet. Mainly the reason for that is with having a baby and kind of as things go along, time gets a little bit short. So I want to continue being able to focus on the quality of the episodes, but also be able to bring you something on this 4th of a Tuesday. And something has kind of changed on our ends when we're recording, and that is that rather than recording clusters of three, we've had to maybe record one or two at a time. And so I'm asking the crew to get together a little bit more than they're used to. And so adding on like a regular let's record and have a Q&A. It's just, it's a little much for where we are right now with raising our little one. And so what, what we're gonna do in place of that is at the end of every arc, we will get the whole crew together and we will talk. So it'll be a little bit more of a bigger thing. Okay, does that explain it? Well, of course it did. You guys are the smartest audience there is out there. And I'm a bit of a caveman, so yeah, easy to understand. Why don't we jump in to this lore segment?
All right, so on today's lore segment, we are going to talk about the Emerald Enclave. That's right, the Emerald Enclave. Now, they've come up twice in Starlight, once in a bonus episode. I'm not going to tell you which one. You can go back and listen to them if you wish to try and pick it out because it might give you hints about certain groups and where they are currently. And then more recently um, on the episode of Your Help for Mine, which came out in the middle of this month of October, there was a small mention of the Emerald Enclave in relation, relation to the Circle of Drake Wardens. And so I kind of wanted to talk about it and tell you a little bit about who they are, both from the canon perspective of, of the Wizards of the Coast world, but then also then juxtaposed into the Starlight world. So let me read you a little bit of something from Forgotten Realms Fandom com on emerald enclave the emerald enclave was an organization of druids and other nature worshipers on the island of leon the actions of the enclave influenced the lives of the high and low its members avoiding good and evil to focus on the needs of the natural world and resist the growing influence of humankind despite their primary goal of preserving nature Members were not direct opponents of progress. They preferred instead to work with civilized folk to promote the health of the natural world without resorting to acts of violence. Now, there's a little bit more, you know, once the spell plague hits and blah, 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 but that's kind of like the base of the Emerald Enclave. They are represented by a coat of green one side, the right side of that coat of green being pure green, and the other side being this kind of smattering of like a foresty green with the silhouette of an elk looking to the side on their on their coat of arms. And so that coat of arms remains the same here on Starlight. And pretty much as with a lot of the other major fact factions from the Wizards of the Coast world, like the Zentarum and so on, the Emerald Enclave is just a spin-off of that idea on a more um, galactic scale. And so in the Starlight Universe, the Emerald Enclave, they are a third body of druids, rangers, um, also just regular folks looking to make a difference, tree huggers, who they go and they find worlds that have the potential for life or have developing life already in progress, but are not civilized or advanced enough to join the galactic community. And so what they do is they set up protections around this, the, those fledgling star systems. So you'll often hear throughout the show or the, the game that we'll talk about the XR1 system, the XR2 system. Those are main solar system bodies that are recognized and a part of the galactic community. Whenever it's something else like X in 1.1 or something like that, it is a fledgling system at a different point in development. And so as of right now, none of the players have been to any of these. They've talked about them, they've heard about them. Some of them, uh, one, of, one of them for example is set in an almost like a 1920s kind of setting 
One is a, a very Bronze Age. And so we have a couple I have a couple of different fledgling systems. One that has nothing but it's just microbes that are beginning to grow. And the Emerald Enclave will go and they'll set up blockades and they try to stop people from coming in and taking advantage of these these solar systems. And you know, where their roots began was on a single planet, and then as they kind of grew into the intergalactic community themselves, it was felt necessary to do so as, you know, a certain space pirate or just kind of a snakeskin salesman would go and make themselves as gods on these these more primitive planets. And so that's where the Emerald Enclave sits in the in the Starlight Universe. And so they play a very important role. In some ways you could probably argue that by not allowing certain things like such as comets or other things to slam into these planets, they themselves are affecting the development. So in a way, they are the antithesis of you know what they claim to be for. Um, and so they're just they're an interesting group that has their fingers in a lot of things. And like any organization, there are those who are corrupt and who can be paid off. So take that as you will. But, um, the Emerald Enclave. Okay, moving on in business. Um, I have two topics I want to talk about that kind of came up through this month's episode. And so, in the very first episode that came on, which is Breath in a Heartbeat, one of the big things that happened was picking up after Jorstak's basically lost it and snapped and crashed a, his Fablegloom starship into the side of the outpost. And as we all know, that left Atlas in dire straits. And when we left, we didn't know if Atlas was going to live. We didn't know if Fablegloom was going to live or if they were going to die. And so we picked up right on rolling life and death saves back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And obviously you guys already know, um, as I was more than happy to let McKenna die and have Courtney, poor Courtney, pick up a new character, which was actually quite liberating and fun for her. Um, I am a fan of character death in the ability and drama that it can bring to a, a game. And so I had no problem with Nathan dying, and he had no problem because for us it's just a game and everything is in service to the fun. So what was more interesting and what even Nathan was curious about what I was curious about was what if Atlas stabilized, as in went to zero points of HP, but Fablegloom woke back up first, or Fablegloom stabilized first before Atlas. In the case of both players stabilizing, but with um, Fablegloom stabilizing first, what I would have done is a few more hours would have passed of them both being out, and then I would have had Fablegloom wake up. The whole plan with that is Fable Gloom was going to search Atlas's body, find the god egg, and want to take it back to his superiors. Uh, and unfortunately, the the token and symbol for what group Fable Gloom was with it, it was lost. Although, you know, Atlas could just ask him. I don't, I don't know why he hasn't yet. But anyways, that aside, he would have taken him back. And yes, him. I didn't misspeak. 
not just the egg, he would have taken Atlas back. He would have found that Atlas was awake. Fable Gloom is, as you've probably started to realize, is not this cutthroat killer, um, at least all of the time. It, that's more of a reputation that he has gained because he's realized the power in making good on your threats. But that's not who Fable Gloom is as a person. Fable Gloom is very honor bound. Fable Gloom pays back debts, life debts, and has a very strict Spartan way of living. And so seeing Atlas hurt, seeing and knowing everything that happened, Fable Gloom would have taken Atlas, would have bound him, would have made sure he was like not a threat. Probably, yeah, kept him in a cell and taken him straight back. But because Atlas woke up, took care of him, Fable Gloom didn't has no inclination to try and betray Atlas because that is a debt worth paying. Atlas could have left him to die, and Fable Gloom knows that. And that is um, that is the bond of warriors. That is the the thing that ties them together, even though they aren't of the same blood. But forever, forever, they are now family forged in the fire literally a fire in gases and metals and whatever but <clears throat> yeah so i think the the story would have drastically changed i mean atlas wouldn't have had the chance to have a very kind of like tender moment with guinevere and and really be forced to choosing you know which life he wanted because um you know with the whole guinevere thing that could have been a not a character death but a way to part nathan from atlas and have him play a new character. There's more ways to thwart a character than in death, and that was one of them. None of those opportunities would have happened. Nathan would have never, at least not in the, in the near future, found out about what that the secret base in Bahamut's past that was on Gideus Kashin's mind when the Sword Griever spoke with his soul. That 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 base was all in the property and power of the one one of the few people he trusted wholeheartedly and that being um Zaguru pops and it would have just been straight on to a whole nother arc which would have been very interesting it would have been getting straight into what do we do with the the god egg and probably moving cutting a corner to move straight into the final conflict of the story at least as i have it written and not as the the players change it because they could always change the final conflict or how maybe we want to go further than that. So that's that. That's what would have happened. And then the next, um, I feel like this is kind of an important one um, because there's not it's not really written about well, but in the uh, last episode of the month, um, Bahamut's Pass, you know, you probably noticed that there was a lot of travel and things that happened. And I just want to talk about, you know, take it or leave it for what it is. But my methods to make travel and explore, explore, blah, 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 blah. My methods to make travel and exploration a fun part without it being a whole session or a simple fast travel, like say in Skyrim. Um, and so I have a few things that I, I, I really like to do. And one is anytime I know that there's going to be kind of more of a travel based game i like to kind of make random charts and use the die 100 i really like die 100s you've noticed yeah and actually i found that my players really like die 100s because it adds so much 
that drama that they they don't know what's going to happen or they only know like they're shooting for a certain percentage but i like to have you know like 30 percent chance something really bad happens nothing really happens in the middle percentage and like in the upper 30 percent of the die 100 something really good happens and that can be experiences that can be locales that can be finding something that can be having enemies pop up that could be having malfunctions and you saw in that whole episode all of those things happened let's see there was pests that ate through their supplies there they got lost they passed a temple that nobody knows what its origin was or or why it was there although atlas could have gotten out to try and explore it and that would have probably opened up a whole new arc um, that but disrupted their engines and set them just adrift in space for days but then on the other hand they discovered a an ancient crash that they found really great supplies um, and they saw you know inspiring sights such as the blue butterflies that which i just don't even know if you could you imagine a whole like like colony of butterflies flying through space luminescent blue wings that would just mind blown you would you you would paint that and people would be like that's amazing so anyways there's so many feelings you can evoke just by doing that and i find that the players really like that um i like to try and make that big block in the middle of the die 100 rolls you know nothing and the reason why is if you have like a huge chance that something happens every time, well, you're, you're never going to get anywhere. You want just the right sprinkle. And you also want to kind of cut it in like a little bit of like the player's um, imagination. Let them jump in and fill in things, right? So, for example... If it's like a really good roll, like if it's like ninety percent, I like to ask the players, "What do you, what 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 happened? What amazing thing happened?" And you know they'll kind of tell me like, "Oh, I discovered this or that." And it, yes, that does take a little bit of a more um, skilled or more mature player to not say like, "I found this game-ending thing," right? Because then you also ask them to do the reverse. What's the bad thing you find? And there's an element of control and excitement in that. Um, and then for you as the game master, it can be really just kind of a slog doing these these overland travel or interstellar travels that just take days. And so I, I like to have these charts, right, where it says supplies ruined. And then suddenly you have to figure out how are the supplies ruined and like what's the connection to the story. So it kind of keeps the brain going, keeps it kind of like a puzzle. And it and, it, and I found that it's it really keeps it um, fun and and quick and i would just also say when you're making these charts if you follow this method i would say only try to have you know a small portion of the things that could bad that could happen be fights there's so many more interesting things that could happen right it could be a social thing where it's like somebody a group of people at a bridge are holding up a toll and now it's like okay how do we maybe the players do fight them but how do they barter their way in and out of that um there's just yeah not everything needs to be a fight fights take time they bog you down um 
And then also, if you are running an experience-based game, I'm running a milestone-based game where you make it to a certain part of the story and you gain a level. But experience would be you, you, you literally have to fight things or go through these scenarios to gain experience. Make each day, you know, completed an X amount of experience, even days where nothing happens. So allow that ability of accruing and doing stuff um, to happen. And then the last thing you can do to create a sense of progress for the players while they're traveling so they don't feel like, oh, it's just traveling from here to there is ask them. What are you, is there anything your character wants to be working on? Is there anything that they're trying to, to gather from people information as they're passing, you know, groups of people along the way and kind of use your DM's discretion to decide like, is this enough time to learn this skill or this speed or, uh, or build this thing that they can sell? And if so, like, let them accrue that, let them work on that and have that also be kind of a reward of spending the capital of time to travel um, because for most of the players time is a cost if done right and so you want to if they want to pursue something that balances that out for them in some sort of way i'd say let them do it and then um, again the last thing with time and with travel is it doesn't have to just be battles, you know, that hurt players, but it's a resource drain. It's something that challenges their resources and their preparedness. So that's how I like to use traveling. Um, let me know if that helps. And if there's other methods by which you like to run, um, you know, kind of West March's style type adventures, let me know. I would love to try them out in, in our game. And uh, until next time, we will see you later. Thanks, Spacers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Starlight. We hope this show brings you as much joy as it does for us to craft it. Significant effort on the order of 10 to 30 hours of editing goes into each episode, and though it is something we will do regardless, any support goes a long ways. If you would like to support the show, here are a few tangible ways in which you can. Rating it five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podchaser helps grow the show and allows us to broaden the audience to spacers who don't know their fans yet. Sharing it with friends or family does the same. And if you wish to donate to help keep our running costs low, you can do so at Coffee in the links below. Last but not least, a simple word of kindness and encouragement to our email below is enough to keep us going no matter what. Have a question or thought that you wish to be aired? Please reach out to us at thestarlightadventures at gmail.com or our social media on Instagram at starlight.adventures. Now, until next time, spacers. Spacers.